1643, Massachusetts, Plymouth, Connecticut, Saybrook, and New Haven joined forces to form the United Colonies of New England, or the New England Confederation. As war in England raged, the colonists couldn't expect support from home, and they were still worried about power struggles with the French, Dutch, and Narragansetts, so they signed a treaty with each other to form a firm and perpetual league in amity. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. The Federation's government would be formed by two commissioners from each colony, and they would meet annually or more often if necessary. The commissioners would fix quotas for men and expenses during wartime, they'd arbitrate disputes with foreign powers in other colonies, they'd ensure the extradition of all fugitives, and they would regulate Indian affairs. The formation of the Federation had a number of tangible effects. It finally gave Massachusetts and the other Puritan settlements the same jurisdictional authority over the Narragansetts that Connecticut had enjoyed under the terms of the Hartford Treaty. It dissuaded people from forming new independent settlements, and it encouraged existing independent settlements to submit to Massachusetts. These settlements included Exeter and its neighboring towns, which had previously resisted Massachusetts' authority. The Union also provided for the settling of intercolonial disputes, as well as the return of fugitives across colony lines. Rhode Island, that place of the otherwise-minded, was excluded, and it was in large part this exclusion which prompted Roger Williams to go to London to apply for a charter to protect the independence of the Rhode Island settlements of Providence, Portsmouth, and Newport. The New England Confederation wanted to expand into Rhode Island and take over, and Roger Williams really didn't have any legally binding claim to the territory. He and others had simply bought it from the Narragansetts. As we've seen so many times before, that left them vulnerable, and in the face of an expansionist United Colonies, it was time for Williams to solidify his claim. Puritan expansion wasn't the only motivation for Williams's patent application, though. In 1643, a man named William Coddington was trying to take over Rhode Island internally. He was a refugee from the Antinomian controversy, and he led a group of fellow exiles, including Anne Hutchinson herself, to found a new settlement. They had set up the town of Portsmouth on land that Williams had helped them buy from the Narragansetts, and Coddington had been named judge of the community, in the biblical sense. So this meant that he was effectively their leader, but within a couple of years, he turned out to be too despotic for the majority of Hutchinson's followers. So a group of settlers, including Hutchinson, had deposed Coddington, who then took his own followers south 
to establish the town of Newport, where he was elected judge again. But Coddington wasn't ready to give up on controlling Portsmouth, so a year later he consolidated the two settlements and made himself governor. This put him in charge of the majority of Rhode Island, and instead of Roger Williams's refugee, it made him his rival. He clearly had ambitions of taking control of all of Rhode Island. So by 1643, as Massachusetts was working to take over Rhode Island externally, Coddington was threatening to take control internally. So Williams went to London and he met with the Earl of Warwick's Committee for Foreign Plantations to apply for a patent. And when he did, Massachusetts agent Thomas Shepard tried to stop him. Fortunately, though, with Vane's help, Williams won, granting the colony legal recognition from the mother country and keeping it safe from Massachusetts's intended expansion. It was a big, and in many ways a lucky, victory. When Williams returned to America, though, the majority of settlers were actually unhappy that he had gotten the patent. The patent gave Roger Williams control over all of Rhode Island, and by this time, two other people wanted that control. One, of course, was Coddington, and the other was Samuel Gordon. And because Gordon will be central to the events of the rest of this episode, it's probably a good time to properly introduce New England's biggest rabble-rouser. Samuel Gordon was born in Manchester and was moderately educated in law. He had been mentored by radically unorthodox clergy, three ministers in particular, and he had adopted all of the most extreme of their views. Without discussing the theologies of his mentors in too much depth, I'll just give you a sampling of the most unorthodox of their beliefs. They didn't support tithes. They didn't think the Bible was the final authority on religious matters. One didn't even believe in the divinity of Jesus. One encouraged lay administration of the sacraments. One argued against the necessity of baptism and Sabbath observation. And one agreed with the Ranter movement, which said that there was no such thing as immorality on earth, that sin was only a product of the imagination, and that private ownership of property was wrong. The Ranter movement was known for its members' tendency to public nudity and extreme libertine behavior. And it was a part of the Familist movement, or Family of Love, which had been founded in the Netherlands by David George of Delft, which is a cult leader name if I've ever heard one, but which had spread farther and faster in England than anywhere else in Europe. We don't have all that many documents by the Familists, so we don't know exactly what they believed or how far their beliefs went on average. But we do have a lot of documents about them by other people, and those documents accuse Familists of pretty much every heresy out there, as well as behaviors like wife-swapping and claims that David George of Delft was the Messiah. 
We also know that some of their beliefs evolved into Quakerism. Suffice it to say, though, that familism took every doctrine of the Reformation and twisted it into something that even the Reformation's strongest advocates couldn't support. And as an individual, Samuel Gordon did exactly that, too. All three of Gordon's mentors would go on to strongly support Cromwell, with two of them serving as chaplains in the New Model Army, and the other working from home to send a Quaker and a regicide to Parliament. And meanwhile, they sent Samuel Gordon to America. Samuel Gordon had come to Massachusetts at the height of the antinomian controversy, but watching views much less radical than his own be quashed, he knew that Massachusetts wasn't for him, so he moved to the more tolerant Plymouth. It wasn't long, though, before Plymouth fined him 18 pounds and gave him 14 days to leave the colony. Not just because of his views, but also because of his behavior. He was actively hostile to the colony's courts and magistrates, and he bothered and offended pretty much everyone. He had added to his following a little bit, though, and at this point he had five disciples. So from Plymouth, Gordon and his five followers then moved to Portsmouth, where they immediately started to politically agitate, calling the local magistrates just asses. Coddington's court had ordered him and one of his disciples to be publicly flogged and banished for this, and Roger Williams allowed him to move to Providence, but he again continued his political and religious agitation until even the ultra-tolerant Roger Williams wanted him gone. He'd picked up a few more followers in Providence, though, and with a now strong following while Roger Williams was in England, Gordon went to the Narragansett Sachem, Miantonomo, and bought some land in Patuxet nearby. There, he established a settlement and began to grow his following until he had a substantial number of disciples. So when Williams returned from England, a huge percent of the population either wanted Coddington or Gordon to be in charge of Rhode Island, but Williams's patent put him in charge. So the colony split into two factions, those who supported Roger Williams and his patent and those who opposed them. And that was the larger group. Charismatic and belligerent, Gordon easily maneuvered his way to become the leader of the larger faction. And then, though this had started as a legal, political battle, he used the conflict to spread his own theological beliefs by introducing them into the debate. He said that there should be no educated clergy, no government, no outward expressions of faith, no sacraments. He said the inner spirit was the only true authority and that it was present in all individuals. Conversion was nothing more than becoming willing to follow the inner spirit. All men were equal and any system with any hierarchy whatsoever denied the true priesthood of all believers. The thing about Gordon's belief is that they didn't just come out of nowhere. 
they were, in fact, a pretty natural example of what would happen if someone took the Reformation ideology and left out the Bible. Pretty much all of his core concepts could be traced back to Calvin's work, but he had taken them so far that he explicitly contradicted the things that Jesus said in the Bible and fully rejected the concepts of intellectualism, education, and authority. Gordon's popularity skyrocketed, though, and soon he had enough followers that Williams couldn't push them out. Williams ordered his followers to remain peaceful, but his faction's options were dwindling. Gordon was using pseudo-democratic rhetoric to tear Rhode Island apart, and he was winning. Williams's faction's best bet was to get help from Massachusetts. So 13 members of Williams's faction, but not Williams himself, petitioned the general court to ask for a military contingent to help push Gordon out. In response to the petition, Massachusetts hinted that they would only help if they were given jurisdiction over Patuxet. Massachusetts definitely wanted to get rid of Gordon's men, but they also wanted to expand their territory into Rhode Island. Owning Patuxet would give Massachusetts a base for military operations against the Narragansetts if need be, and it would be another step toward bringing Rhode Island into line with the rest of the New England colonies. Under normal circumstances, this would be a terrible deal for Providence because it did jeopardize Rhode Island's future independence. And indeed, the move was unpopular, but Williams's men were desperate, so they took the court up on its suggestion and allowed Patuxet to be annexed. An interesting little tidbit here, one of the people who took the lead in allowing this annexation was Benedict Arnold's grandfather. So Massachusetts prepared to push Gordon out. The general court told Gordon to leave, and in response he wrote two pamphlets, saying, among other things, that the colony had no legal right to extend its borders beyond those established in its charter, and that Massachusetts was filled with hypocrites. He said it was scandalous that the clergy were paid, and it was terrible that the clergy were educated. He said that baptism was nothing more than a superstition, no better than the cross, so if Puritans opposed the cross, which they did, they needed to oppose baptism too. The clergy found 26 instances of blasphemy in the document, but even more than the content, the tone was unbelievably hostile or maybe believably hostile, given the fact that Gordon had picked fights with the magistrates in every single town he'd been in. When they received the letter, Massachusetts then sent messengers to negotiate, which I would imagine meant something like explaining that they had jurisdiction over Gordon's land and that he could either conform or leave. But Gordon threatened the messengers with violence, so the next group that Massachusetts sent was armed. They finally forced Gordon out, and he and his 11 most ardent disciples moved to Shawomet, 
south of Patuxet and outside of Massachusetts's new borders. As they left, they fired a parting salvo toward Massachusetts, and then they sent another letter explaining how the Massachusetts government and church were wrong, and this one was even more vitriolic than the first. In Shawomet, they bought a piece of land from Miantonomo with the permission of the local sachem, Pumham. But Massachusetts wasn't going to just let him stay in the area because he'd bought a piece of land from the Indians. They fundamentally wanted to enforce religious homogeneity in New England. So, to invalidate Gordon's possession of the land, they encouraged Pumham and another local sachem named Sokononoko to stop paying tribute to the Narragansetts and to submit to them instead. That way, the land that they were living on would again be under Massachusetts jurisdiction, and they could argue that Miantonomo's sale of the land wasn't valid. Miantonomo objected, saying that this was an encroachment of his authority. But Massachusetts dismissed the claim, saying that the two sachems had always been free sachems, not Miantonomo's vassals. Then, they went to bring Gordon in. A 40-person troop laid siege to the house where Gordon and his 11 most devoted followers were taking refuge. There was a long fight, but ultimately the Gordonists surrendered, were taken prisoner, their property and possessions confiscated, and they were marched back to Boston as the townspeople cheered. He and his followers were brought in front of the general court, and after a little bit of intimidation, they forced them to attend a service by John Cotton, hoping that Cotton's rhetoric would show him the errors of his ways, after which he would recant and join the rest of society. Cotton spoke about a story in Acts 19 in which a silversmith and manufacturer of idols who was upset by the number of people converting to Christianity in Ephesus tried to shut Paul's preaching down. Cotton frequently tailored his services to the current events of the colony, so I'm sure there would have been some pointed commentary on Gordon's behavior. And after the service, Gordon asked to speak. And Cotton agreed. Why he agreed, I have absolutely no idea. But he did, and Gordon stood up in front of the congregation and told them his interpretation of the passage. He said that the passage was showing how all of the church's ordinances, ministers, ceremonies, and sacraments were nothing more than men's inventions, and no different than the shrines to pagan gods. His sermons spoke again to the foundation of his worldview. Anarchy. The court's plan hadn't worked, so now they prepared for a trial. They examined Gordon for three weeks, questioning him and each of his followers one at a time behind closed doors. And one at a time behind closed doors, 
Gordon and his men evaded and equivocated, saying that their views had been misrepresented, but refusing to reject them. They were pronounced guilty, and the only question was sentencing. And this time, it was the ministers and the magistrates who wanted the harsher punishment. In fact, they wanted Gordon and his followers to all be executed. All of the magistrates, except for Saltonstall and Bellingham, voted for execution. And this time it was the deputies who refused. Given what we've previously discussed, that might be surprising at first, but it's actually a really good illustration of just how dangerous Gordon actually was. Gordon was, by all accounts, articulate and charismatic, and like I said, his ideology could essentially be described as populist Calvinism minus the Bible. That means that if anyone in the colony had a stronger foundation in Calvinism than the Bible, they could easily be led astray by Gordon. And if anyone was more focused on populist ideas than biblical ones, they would also be inclined to follow Gordon. People like Gordon had already convinced lots of people within England to follow them using this populist rhetoric. It's not just that he was rapidly anti-ministerial and anti-intellectual, and it wasn't just that he threatened the church and government's authority. He was actually uniquely suited to change or destroy the development of Christianity in the New World. Hutchinson and some of her followers may have gone too far, but they had nothing on this guy, and the fact that the deputies wanted to be lenient with him indicated that he might have a lot of success throughout the colony. This is also a good example of the fears that Catholics and high church Protestants had about the spread of Calvinism itself. It was so easy to manipulate. A church hierarchy was comprised of people with a thorough religious education who moved up the hierarchy as they gained experience and proved their competence and intelligence. And without this hierarchy, radical, heretical, and socially destructive movements were all but inevitable and harder to stop. And as evidence for the high church supporters' fears, the heresy had been getting progressively more extreme in New England. Roger Williams at least had a solid Puritan biblical foundation, and really he had been more of a political liability than a heretic. Anne Hutchinson was uncontrollable and divisive, and she had accepted heretical ideologies, but she wasn't fundamentally going to destroy the foundation of society. Gordon, on the other hand, easily could. Despite all of this, the deputies seemed to have some sympathy for Gordon, and this sympathy didn't just cement the minister-magistrate alliance, it made the two actively suspicious of the deputies and of the people that they represented. If they thought that Gordon's behavior was okay, but opposed Keene even with no evidence against him, what kind of a society did they actually want? But if they couldn't kill Gordon, they had to figure out what to do with him. 
Exile would just give Gordon what he wanted, a new town and a base of operations to continue spreading his dissent. To minimize the danger, the court sentenced the dissidents to work in irons until the court said they could stop. Gordon and his followers were also separated, with each dissident being sent to a different town. And if one of them spoke of or published Gordon's blasphemies, he would be executed. So they would be completely unable to talk to each other, they'd be in chains, and they'd be executed if they spread their ideas to other people. But even that wasn't enough. Just a few months later, Endicott told Winthrop that Salem's prisoner had been spreading his beliefs and condemning the town's new minister and the town's church. And worse, he had created a group of converts among the townspeople who could then go on to spread the heresies further. Endicott wanted the man executed. He wanted to make an example of him. But Winthrop worried about making the man a martyr, and he also worried about creating more conflict with the deputies who were still sympathetic to Gordon and who were still trying to chip away at the magistrate's power. The only remaining option was exile, so the general court released all the Gordonists and gave them 14 days to leave Massachusetts on penalty of death. The group went to Aquidneck Island, where one of Coddington's original settlements had been, and where Coddington was still governor, and where they were joined by a group of people who had been dissatisfied by Coddington's leadership. The issue wasn't quite over, though, because it had sparked a conflict with Mi Antonomo, who had become friends with Gordon and who was still furious about his treatment by Massachusetts regarding Pumham, Sukunanoko, and Shawomet. The old rumors of Mi Antonomo's plans to attack the English began to recirculate, and this time with a level of detail they hadn't previously had. The rumors now said that Miantonoma was trying to recruit 250 Long Island warriors to fight the English, calling for pan-Indian unity, and citing the depletion of the region's wildlife, grass, and trees as the reasons that the English needed to be driven out. After the English were gone, they would keep the cows to eat while the deer populations recovered. In addition to these rumors, Violence between the Narragansetts and the Mohegans was escalating. And in fact, it really looked like Gordon was pushing the Antonomo to attack Uncas. He'd even given the Sachem a coat of chainmail. Miantonomo organized a series of plots on Uncas's life, including sending a Pequot warrior to stab the Sachem. The Puritans asked Miantonomo to send the man for questioning and Miantonomo beheaded him instead. Then the Mohegans killed several members of a tribe which paid tribute to the Narragansetts, and in response, Miantonomo staged an invasion of Uncas's territory, taking with him a huge group of warriors. But despite their greater numbers, the Narragansetts lost, and Miantonomo was taken prisoner. 
Gordon wrote to Uncast demanding the release of Miantonomo, but by the terms of the Hartford Treaty, Uncast brought him before the commissioners of the United Colonies of New England instead. Miantonomo's trial was the first official action of the United Colonies. At the trial, Uncast said that Miantonomo was plotting against the English and that he planned to make himself Universal Sagamore, or Sachem. Connecticut residents, especially Lyon Gardner, believed Uncast's testimony, though they knew that there was no clear evidence the claims were true. Though Massachusetts still wasn't completely convinced, the commissioners collectively decided that it was too dangerous to let Miantonoma live. And they didn't need proof that he was plotting against the English. He had broken the provision of the Hartford Treaty, which mandated that all intertribal conflicts be settled by the English, and for this, he was sentenced to death. They ordered Uncast to carry out the sentence on his own land, and they ordered that he be killed humanely, not tortured. So on the road between Hartford and Windsor, Uncast killed Miantonoma with a sharp blow to the head. Canonicus and Miantonoma's brother and successor, Pesicus, were alarmed by this, and to protect themselves from Massachusetts, they submitted themselves to the English crown, saying that now, if any great matter should fall, then neither yourselves nor we are to be the judges, but both of us are to have recourse and repair to that honorable and just government. In other words, the colonists wouldn't be the group with the final say in the region. The king and English government would have the final say over both groups because both groups would be English subjects. And on that note, we are leaving New England for a while. And the funny thing is that we're leaving it in its permanent form. New England and the Chesapeake are almost poetically contrasted to each other. Perfect literary foils. Town versus rural. Collective versus individual. Social unity versus a network of individual connections. Meticulous government versus minimal government. And one of the ways that they differ is that while the society of the Chesapeake continued to develop gradually, it took just over a decade for New England to pretty much establish how its society would operate in the long term. It took just over a decade for New England to pretty much establish how its society would operate in the long term. Chisel versus Mold Migration stopped in 1642, and it really didn't start again. For the next 200 years, more people would leave New England than move there. And as the English Civil War had begun, the biggest per capita mass exodus in American history also happened. As New England Puritans returned home to fight for Parliament, often in positions of leadership. New England society had taken its permanent, if not final, form by 1642. And that society was a pretty distinct one. The environment was healthy, 
It was cold enough to prevent insect-borne diseases like malaria and yellow fever. And there was clean water to prevent typhoid and dysentery. It was also cool enough in summer that enteritis wasn't a big issue. And it wasn't long before New England actually had a longer life expectancy than England or most European countries. The big exception with regards to life expectancy was Africans, who were unaccustomed to the cold New England winters and got severe pulmonary infections, which created a black death rate which was twice as high as that of Europeans. This is unlike colonies further south, where black people had a life expectancy which was similar to, and in some cases longer than, that of white people. The society continued to focus on values of unity and community. Liberty was something which belonged to a community, not an individual. And in fact, communities were so tightly knit that different towns often had different accents, and town pride was a big thing. The ministers of the six biggest, most central towns took the lead in defining clerical opinion and practice for the whole region, minus Rhode Island, and they created committees to discuss all aspects of the colony's development, led by those 12 ministers. Harvard became the center of a long-term strategy to achieve unity and to eliminate the kind of bickering which had occurred in the early years. Harvard's graduates went on to become the colony's civic and religious leaders, as well as its future educators. And because all of those people had the same education, they also had similar perspectives. So unlike the first generation of New Englanders who came with a variety of different interpretations of Puritan views, which had evolved independently, future generations were all educated in the same perspectives. And because children were educated by Harvard graduates too, they would also share those views. This ensured that there would never again be a cultural divide on the scale of the antinomian controversy. There would still be disagreements, of course, but they'd be smaller and less fundamental. And unlike the Chesapeake, in New England, the nuclear family was the fundamental basis of society. People weren't even allowed to live alone. Only 6.5% of New Englanders even bequeathed to nieces and nephews. And people weren't even allowed to live alone. They had the highest number of kids per family in the Western world for the first couple generations. And unlike in the Chesapeake, most of those children grew up with two living parents. But families were inspected regularly for internal order. And in extreme cases of disorder, children could be taken away from their parents. The food was plain, the people were formal, and on the whole, people accepted taxes which were extremely high for the time period, two to four times the average for other parts of British America. There were lots of laws with a variety of motivations, and some, like no single man can marry until he's killed 
six blackbirds or three crows, might strike us as odd today. Crimes against property were more common than crimes against persons, which is again opposite from the Chesapeake. But crimes against order were the most common of all, and most adults would be prosecuted at least once for things like violating the Sabbath, idleness, or domestic disorder. And I could go on, but you get the picture. The New England Way was established. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter. And you can find those links at the website, AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to firsthand accounts and things. See you next week. <laughs>